Live export is a difficult subject. Some listeners may find this challenging. I'm Colin Klupik. This is 47 Degrees. In addition to talking about animal welfare, the ethics of consuming animal products, and the difficulty of achieving humane death, it seemed logical to speak with someone who could tell me more about actual meat processing and what the implications of live export are for the workers in that industry. It's a connection I didn't make easily, and I think that's because it falls into that category of things we don't really think about much. Meat always seems to be in the supermarket, regardless of whether it's local, imported, processed by a full-time worker, or a part-time worker, or any other worker, or if we're in drought, or in good conditions. Like many things in life, it's so easy to take it for granted. I've organised to meet with Grant Courtney, the Secretary for the Australasian Meat Industry Employees Union, in the Newcastle and Northern office. The building is called Union House, and is unsurprisingly located in Union Street. Again, it's another one of those buildings that I've been past so many times and noticed but never really given a second thought to. Now I get an inside look. It wasn't quite the doorbell I was expecting. It was as cheerful as the greeting. Good morning. We conduct our conversation in the boardroom at the end of a narrow corridor. What greets me is an enormous artwork on the wall that depicts all the products that meat workers process. Grant tells me that the people in the artwork are actually real people and not simply artistic characters. I immediately get a sense of the history I've just stepped into and the energy that goes into protecting the rights of workers in this industry. I start by asking how he begins to explain the union's perspective to ordinary people who may not know very much at all about how all this is connected. There's a clear indication that the union considers animal welfare as a big issue that contributes to the sustainability of the meat industry. But the issue of protecting local jobs and a sustainable jobs future for young Australians dominates. I think it's a, it's been a, a major issue of the Meat Workers Union since 1985, where um, a range of abattoirs um, started to close, and, and uh, there was a, an interesting um, decision by a, a select committee in the Hawke government that determined back in 1985 that that live animal exports should be phased out back then. Um, Of course, there's been a range of information about animal welfare. Um, Our main concern um, from the meat processing sector is about Australian jobs Mm. in regional communities. Since I've been um, uh, an official of the AMIU in the last 22 years, um, there's been around 100 plants close, 100 major plants close. Are these in cities or in the regional areas? This is across Australia. This is across Australia, whether it's been to livestock downturn, whether it's been to poor management decisions, there's been around 100 plants closed. There's been at least 20,000 jobs lost in the last 22 years in meat processing alone. The sad thing about it is at the moment the meat processing sector is the largest manufacturing workforce left in Australia. There's about 55,000 workers in meat processing now, and that's red meat processing and also poultry processing, including retail processing. Yeah. Our main concern, of course, with this particular subject is about continuity of livestock to make sure that our members, those 55,000 workers, have work. We need to have employment in Australia. We need to have regional pathways. We need to have training pathways for our kids. Not all of our kids want to go on to university. 
Mm. Not all of our kids in regional Australia um, clearly want to be doctors, nurses or, or other professionals. Some of them are quite happy to leave in grade 10. Um, when I left school, I left school in grade 10 mm. and entered the meat industry. It's been pretty good to me um, in my life. And, and I'd like to think this, that same opportunity for other regional kids to have some career pathway in meat processing, which is now the largest manufacturing workforce left in Australia. So I guess from a from a, a person's general perspective, when they when they watch, uh, say, a, a sixty minute story, their mind, I guess, would start to wander overseas to where those animals go and to what happens to them over there. But really, there's quite a big issue happening over here. So, I guess what you're trying to say is that you're trying to bring people's awareness to you know back here. <laughs> there are things happening here because of those animals going over there. Is is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. Um, at the moment, our livestock herd is at its lowest. In 25 years. At the moment, we've got between 8,000 either under or unemployed meat workers in Australia. So, when you're talking about moving 1.5 million head of cattle offshore to be processed either in Indonesia, Vietnam, or elsewhere, those animals would assure jobs for those workers that I'm talking about. If they were retained here, those 8,000 either underemployed, and I mean people working two to three days a week, yeah, or unemployed, yeah. um, they would have employment. Right. Surely there's some social responsibility of the government to ensure that our raw commodities, being the livestock, are processed humanely by Australian workers as opposed to exporting the raw commodity, that 1950s raw commodity culture where we just dig things up and yeah, send yeah, it yeah. offshore and don't make any money. Well, shouldn't we, shouldn't we be value-adding? Yeah, particularly when uh, when there's this cyclical nature of, of what I'm hearing is a kind of a kind of a boom and bust thing. If, if, if it's raining and there's no drought and the, and the conditions are good, there's plenty of animals, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we need to make use of the good conditions and the good times. And I think most happen. of the processes will, will say behind their their boardroom doors, they agree with our position, but none of them are prepared to come out publicly and and uh, and front this they're not prepared to front it because they're worried about what the meat and livestock association will say they're worried about the national farmers federation will say and basically they're all free traders yeah right they're all free traders right we need to have some protections put in place to ensure that we process our animals in australia we've got this natural quarantine called an ocean we live in an island, <laughs> yeah. right? And and we should be marketing our natural quarantine. Why yeah. do the Japanese want so much beef from us? Why do the Koreans want so much beef from us? Yeah. Why now are the Chinese wanting to buy into abattoirs, buy land masses of some of the largest pastoral grazing land in the north and the northwest? Why is it that Gina Reinhardt now wants to send all of her animals live because she doesn't want to pay Australian workers Australian terms and conditions of employment? Yeah. That's my view. Well, we'll get on to those sorts of issues in just a minute. But when we talk about uh, where meat processing happens, you know, for, look, let's face it, most people in Australia live in urban areas and not rural areas. But you often hear things like, oh, we need to be supporting people in rural areas and, you know, think of our people in the country. What does it actually look like? I mean, you've been to these places and seen it with your own eyes. What, what does it actually look like? How do you describe to a city person who's got no idea when when a, a meat processing facility or any other industry for that matter, but particularly from your perspective, when they are uh, operating at lower capacity and you do have underemployed people or unemployed people, what does that look like in the town? Are people just wandering around? I just uh, I use um, Tamworth as an example. Tamworth is the is the biggest 
multi-species meat processing hub in Australia. There's about 2,800 within the New England electorate, which is Barnaby Joyce's electorate. Yeah. Um, in that town, you would think that there would be uh, a full employment of our kids. There's actually a 19.5% youth unemployment rate in Tamworth. It's an absolute disgrace, yeah. we see, because of training pathways. Those plants have access to animals right now, but those companies choose to engage temporary migrants to do the work. Um, other sites in Queensland in particular, um, most of the plants up there are not running at full capacity. Um, 60% of the national herd is in Queensland. Queensland probably has been damaged more when it comes to live animal exports because Queensland is the closest port, yeah. so they can send animals to Vietnam or they can send animals to um, to to Indonesia for that purpose. Because you were mentioning before that uh, there's been the suggestion that Australians don't want to work in that kind of industry. It's not a desirable industry to work in. But I, I would suspect that when you when you canvass people on the street who are unemployed, they'd probably take on that work. Absolutely. Like we done some labour market testing only six or seven weeks ago, where we we threw it out to the three major employers in Tamworth, being Thomas Foods International, being Tees and also being Bayada. And uh, Thomas Foods in particular had moved 134.57 workers from their plant in South Australia to do a complete shift. And I put it on the CEO of the company to say, why don't you introduce some training pathways for some of our local kids here? And they said, oh, they won't, they won't they want to work in our industry. They don't want to work. And I said, well, how about I'll, I'll find you some? We spent a couple of days at Tamworth doing some genuine labour market testing, talking to kids. We found 106 people in three hours that wanted to work. And we're talking about young people between yeah. 16 and 20. Yeah. Like 80% of those young kids were Indigenous. Um, they wanted to work. And Bayada, credit to them, they actually provided 20 positions for them. So it's a big tick for Bayada. They yeah. found positions for them. Um, we're not a labour hire agency. But the <laughs> thing is, clearly, we yeah. are genuinely worried about our youth in regional Australia. And when you're talking about Tamworth being the largest multi, multi-species multi meat processing hub, why is it that nearly 20% of our kids haven't got jobs? So in, in light of that, can you talk me through the logic of the Australian government then announcing funding programs uh, or training or funding training programs for other countries like uh, the, the the one that was recently announced for Vietnam? I was flabbergasted when we first received um, the news um, and it was the the news was actually through Queensland Central newspaper, um, um, Beef Central, where it, it posted that the the government was prepared to provide $146 million over five years to Vietnam to train meat workers. Um, that factually was not correct. It was factually not correct. Um, the government, what, um, the gov- what the newspaper quoted was that um, the, the total foreign aid budget for five years in Vietnam was $146 million. Okay. However, um, there was a million dollars there for two years to train Vietnamese meat workers. Why is it you're giving a million dollars to this particular government, this particular foreign country, where you should be steering funds towards training Australian kids in regional communities. Surely we should have a preference here before Mm. we start throwing out money. And we're talking about minimum wages in Vietnam, $3.50 Australian equivalent, right? compared to minimum wages here in Australia, $22.60. And I'm talking about casual rates, not not, not base rates. 
Um, that's the reason why they're doing it. They don't want to process meat here. They want the meat to be processed there and then we buy it back. So uh, some people might be thinking that it's got something to do with standards. Obviously, if, if we're training people overseas, uh, that they don't do it as well as we do. So it's in our interest to train them for some strange reason. So when we talk about standards, can you tell me what that looks like in real terms? I mean, most people only know meat from seeing it under cling wrap in a supermarket and they think, oh, well, that's been produced well. So we're obviously we're, we're spending money training other countries how to do it. Um, why are our standards so high? What, what, does, what does that mean? Generally, there's, a, there's this particular training organisation called Mintrack where every Australian meat worker generally goes down the pathway of a qualification of some sort, whether it's Certificate 1, Certificate 2 or Certificate 3, which is trade equivalent. Um, I know every Australian citizen in most of our major plants at least get Certificate 2 in, 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 um, in meat processing Hmm. which generally is an accreditation win for the employer for when they go and market their products overseas. And we generally sell meat products, I believe, to about 48 different countries. Um, they can say, well, all of our staff are accredited. These are their qualifications. These are the standards. And, of course, our quality assurance programs generally are a living, breathing organism because they're always changing to suit the customer's requirements. And in particular, when we talk about our retailers here, Coles and Woolworths probably have some of the strictest quality assurance programs, probably in excess of the, 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 the Meat Export Act 1985. You know, so they are probably the highest customers mm. with the highest standards, and that's looking after, of course, the domestic population as opposed to sending our product overseas. But we still feel the need to train people overseas because they're receiving our animals live, I take it. Oh, well, we do. I, th- I think it's a moral obligation for us to try and assist, but, but really, how can we control some training arrangement? I know when they brought out these, so- these knocking boxes a few years ago and they said, oh, this was, this was a, an MLA initiative, this was a live, uh, a live export association initiative. Um, as soon as the person that introduced the training, so how they, how they knocked the animals in the knocking box, they left, of course, they went back to their own barbaric ways of how they used to do them before, whether they were using pickaxes or whether they were mm. using some other method of stunning the animal. Um, like This issue around that you need to actually um, um, stun an animal correctly, it's correct, you need to. We say that every animal should be stunned, right? Most yeah. animals in Australia are stunned humanely yeah. and then they're stuck accordingly. If you look at other models, right, um, our, our Kiwi brothers and sisters across the ditch, generally there's a, there is no live animal exports. There is none. Right? They generally process every animal. Mm. Right? Yes, they might send off the occasional some breeding stock, uh, some dairy, some some dairy um, cattle. I've sent off for breeding stock to China, but predominantly every lamb, every sheep, and every beast in New Zealand is processed by New Zealand meat workers. Right? Isn't that a good policy? This is a a, a government and a country that predominantly doesn't have mining. It generally has food production. Yeah. It generally has tourism and it has a really really good name a clean image and why can't we adopt that why can't we just say we should be processing our animals here we should be processing them humanely the animal welfare concerns are not in australia than what they are elsewhere yes there are some issues when it comes to livestock transportation in australia but we're talking about most animals will be transported less than 20 hours Mm. less than 20 hours to a plant we should be building more plants to process animals in regional Australia. As Dr Ann Fawcett and Dr Bitter-Jones mentioned, 
Transporting animals is stressful, and if you're going to do it, you need a good reason for it. It was interesting to hear Grant mention that there were still problems with local transport of livestock. But 20 hours to a plant? That sounds better than weeks at sea. And with the bonus of local jobs creation, it sounds like a compelling argument. Coming up, I talk to Grant about what factors might influence a natural decline of the live export industry. Is it possible that this could just gradually disappear? Just coming back to the, uh, the issue on WA, there was a, a 2018 report into economic issues associated with live export or live sheep export um, produced by Pegasus Economics, uh, which was made available to me by the, by the union. Mm-hmm. Having a read through that, it shows that there has been a trend decline since the 1980s, and that's consistent with some of the things that you've been talking about, yet we still talk about loss of local jobs. If the meat was processed here, then that positively impacts local jobs. But if the trend, de- if the trend is in decline for live export, how much does the trend actually have to decline by or go away before it stops impacting us locally? And I, there's a couple of other things that are related to that, but have you got some insight on that? I think it's a really interesting topic at the moment with WA because you've got a, a Labor government over there, a state Labor government that's, that's willing to try and end it quickly. You've got a state Labor government, I believe, that's willing to assist sheep producers in the difference between what they're being paid by the live exporters, right, compared to what they're being paid by the processors. And I think there's a dollar figure between 4 and $8 a head, that, which is the difference. And the, and the sheep farmer will say, I need the $8, right, otherwise I lose money. Well, clearly, I don't believe that. I believe if he gets the $4, he'll be quite happy. And then he's got that continuity of being able to turn off his turn off his raw commodity being yeah. his animals. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that the the Western Australian Labor government um, is brave enough to say that we will compensate you for a certain period of time. We will pay you that 4 bucks or that $5 or that $6 per head so we can end this horrific trade and we can also create more employment. And we're talking about direct jobs between 350 and 500 But if you're talking about the associated jobs following that in the, in the kindred industries, you multiply it by seven. So you're really looking at about 2,500 jobs more if you bring an end to live sheep exports in WA. Yeah. It's a big domino effect. And I think I'm hoping that our, that our farming friends that, that produce the animals um, take that on board and look at some hard data. Don't just look at some of the propaganda that's been forced in their throats by the MLA and by the NFF. You know, look at some hard data. Yeah, because I'm worried about cost, and, and I'm hoping that the government of the day there at the moment will assist them in a transition and which will, will make sure they don't lose money yeah, and turn yeah. their animals off. So the, the report was also suggesting, on, in very broad terms, that receipts from sales of animals that go live export are also diminishing and form a, a very small part of the farmer's revenue. With the farmers, and this is a very naive question, with the farmers mind if live export just went away what if it just stopped i mean if the, if the receipts are diminishing if the income is diminishing if there's trend decline what if it just went away do they care who they sell their animals to no no they don't you now the free traders you know like they want to be able to get their highest the highest price that they can get from anyone right that's their number one problem you know <laughs> i've spoken to many sheep producers over the years and and they've said to me you know grant off the record clearly we agree with what you guys are doing we agree with what the animal welfare people are doing, but the thing is, I still want to be able to make money. Yeah, yeah. I still want to be able to make money. Um, I don't think the producers care where the animals go, but I think it'd be pretty good if the producers' organisation or a group of producers said, "Well, 
we're against live animal exports, right? We actually want the animals to be processed here. We want our kids to have an opportunity to work in the meatworks if that's what they choose to do, mm. right, when they complete school, right? Not all of them are going to end up being doctors, nurses or, or fly-ins from other, some other position. That's what I'd like to think what's going to happen. Um, but the trend with live shipping in WA, it is declining. Mm. It is declining. Through natural attrition, will it end? I believe it will. And there's also an indication as well in that same report, if I can just come back to that, that the Gulf Cooperation Council states, uh, you know, in the Middle East, uh, one of our main export destinations, are showing a preference for imported processed meat anyway. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm struggling to understand why we would continue to send the sheep. If the farmers don't care, if our customers in the Middle East are starting to prefer meat that's processed here in Australia, again, a very naive question. Why, why is this still an issue? My main concern with this particular issue is that if we don't put some protections in place for our jobs in the north and our jobs and our career paths for our kids, right, we're not going to have a meat processing sector left. Right? Everyone wants our raw materials at the moment. Everyone. And when I say our raw materials and our processed products being our red meat products talk to any of the major processors you know like and they say they're doing it tough but the thing is their markets are still there uh, there's not enough animals to kill mm. we just need some of those processes to come out you know like companies like jbs companies like tees companies like thomas foods international they need to cut they're the three biggest they need to come out and say we want to kill the animals here i know they're not going to they won't agree with what the union says or what a union official says but they say we support local jobs we support creating training pathways for our kids. That's what they need to shoot. They, that's what they should be looking at as opposed to um, um, being silent on this issue and, and letting the animal welfare movement run the argument based on cruelty as opposed to running a good, solid economic argument of creating Australian jobs. If, if you could sum it up in an idea or if you could sum it up in a word or a statement as to why this can't be ended. First of all, is that actually possible? And if it was, what, what do you think that one main ingredient is as to why we can't shut this down? I think at the moment it's the perfect time to shut it down. You've got um, strong public opinion against it. You've got people within government. You've got you know, like backbenchers and there's a range mm. of, of conservative members that are supporting an end to the live export trade. Um the numbers don't lie. Like, we provided an industry report um, not so long ago to the MLA and to the government about where the jobs are and about clear numbers of what numbers are required to sustain existing employment in the meat processing sector. And, of course, I believe the government is running with that at the moment um, uh, with Little Proud's change intact, and we know I, you know, clearly he was a Barnaby puppet previously, but clearly he's the minister now. Mm. He has a different tact. He's a, he's a much more softer approach. And like I've sought to have a meeting with him as soon as possible about what we can try and do together about providing correct information. Um, all of the stuff that we've provided, I believe, is factual. And like We've got the data. We've got the list of plants that have closed. We've got the names of people who have lost their bloody jobs. Uh, you know, like, I can't see how it cannot end, how it cannot end. And if you're looking at the Middle Eastern markets, you know, they want our our fresh product, they don't want frozen product, they want fresh cryvac product. 
They want flown in product. There are jumbos full of meat flying there every day. Chilled meat. Chilled meat. So they don't want frozen stuff in, yeah. in, in cartons. They want chilled meat, portion controlled, 200 gram pieces. That's what they want. And that, yeah. that is jobs for Australia. Yeah. Right? This furphy about, oh, they've got no refrigeration. We're talking about the richest countries in the world here, the ones that own our oil. <laughs> they have refrigeration. Go to Dubai and have a look at some of their shopping centres. I yeah. haven't been there. But clearly these people have money. Yes. Right? And they are getting closer to the Western culture and Western eating habits every every year. They want to eat more meat. They want to eat more red meat. And they want to eat clean Australian product free of zoonotic disease. They don't want products from South America where there could be issues. They don't mm. want products from the States where there could be issues. They don't want products from Europe because of BSE, mad cow disease. They want our product because we've got that natural quarantine called water yes. around our big island. We should be processing every animal here, humanely. The natural quarantine called water. Australia is a long way from many countries and that's often a problem. On this subject, however, could we turn it into an opportunity? Grant mentions the example of New Zealand. He raises another good question. If New Zealand really does have a clean image on meat export, then could we simply adopt that model? No doubt that would make a significant contribution to the employment prospects of young people in regional Australia for generations to come. Again, these are big questions and can't necessarily be answered quickly or easily, but they are worth thinking about. And right now, it seems. Forty Seven Degrees is independently produced by Colink Media. Interviews, narration, and production by Colin Klupik. Music licensed by Getty Images. To get in touch, send your emails to 47degrees at colinkmedia.com. Or to post your thoughts and join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash 47 degrees podcast. <laughs>